I intentionally did not listen to um, Pastor Sue's sermon of a couple of weeks ago um, before writing this sermon. Um, then I listened to it after I'd written this, and it was amazing how much what you're going to hear this morning is a repetition or a continuation of what Sue said. Um, they say that great minds think alike. Uh, apparently, Sue's and mine do too. Um, <laughs> And if she happens to be listening to this sermon, um, let me just say, turn off the computer and go back to your sabbatical. <laughs> well, um, they used to be strangers, but not anymore. Uh, God had picked them up and planted them right down into the middle of a family whose roots were ages deep, a family with lots of traditions and rules, some unspoken and assumed, others repeated over and over again until the point was made. And over time, that deeply rooted family welcomed them in as sisters and brothers. They tried to make them feel at home. They told them stories of the past, stories of how God had acted again and again to save his people from certain death. And they taught them the rules, the rights and wrongs of life in the family. Now, some thought it would be good to go over the rules right up front so there'd be no misunderstanding later. Others thought it was wrong to push the old rules off onto the new family members to burden them with the baggage of 2,000 years. And still others thought those rules no longer applied anyway, so let's just stop trying to put old wine into new wineskins. And over time, the new members, too, developed their own rules and ideas and their own stories to share. And before too long, those rules and ideas and stories became part of the larger family tradition a tradition passed on for the next 2,000 years. Well, imagine what it felt like to be taken from one world and dropped into an altogether new one, like being picked up and tossed into the bottom of the ocean. Now, fortunately, you'd been given some gillyweed, and so you quickly learned that you can breathe underwater, but it would still take time to adjust, wouldn't it? It would take time to become reoriented, time to explore and to discover just what this new world was about, time to learn what life in this new world ought to look like. And that's the situation that the Ephesians were in. They were Gentiles, those who were far off, Paul called them, saved by the power of God in Christ, grafted onto the newly developed faith known as Christian, which was itself a new branch growing from a very old tree, brought crashing through the walls of religion and tradition and suddenly face-to-face -face with a bunch of strangers who slowly welcomed them as family. It was enough to take their breath away. But the breath of God, the Holy Spirit, was there to breathe for them. The Spirit was there to help them get oriented to this new life, this new world. Now, they were not all alike, of course. This was not a bunch of Baptists who decided to add a prefix to their name and convert as a group to a new tradition. No, this was a more motley crew than that. Different lifestyles, different social classes, different faith backgrounds. There were some slaves in the group, perhaps some slave owners every one of them called by a God that they'd never seen before or met before into a new faith and into relationship with each other. And naturally, there was some rubbing, some chafing, some disagreement, some argument, different understandings of the gospel message based on different worldviews, different ideas about behavior, and different opinions about whether behavior, well, even mattered, was an issue, or whether they were beyond all that now that they'd received the Holy Spirit. On and on and on, each gathering seemed to reveal new differences, new points of debate. And then they got this letter from Paul telling them that they are one in Christ. 
I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul is telling the Ephesians to be humble, to be gentle, to defer to one another, to be patient, to put up with each other, to do their best to maintain the unity of the Spirit by strengthening the bond of peace. Paul called them together to be one, and so they needed to act like it. It was so much easier, of course, to simply act the way they'd always acted, to follow their own paths without regard to those around them, to stand firm on their own convictions, excluding those with whom they disagreed, to insist that it was their way or the highway, to insist on their rights, their freedoms, even when they conflicted with the rights and freedoms of others. And that's the way they'd always operated, right? They were human, and that's the way humans operate, right? But Paul calls them to something else entirely and does it in a very pastoral way. He shows them how things are supposed to look in the family. He acknowledges that they are newly adopted and so may not know what's expected of them. He also reminds them of what Christ did to get them there, and it is because of Christ that Paul calls them to live together in love. God called them together to be one. In fact, Paul suggests, they already are one. The walls have already been broken, and there is therefore already one body, just as there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. The unity of the body has already been established by Christ. Yes, the Ephesians will continue to feel themselves pulling away from each other, that centrifugal force called alienation. Yes, they are still human enough to irritate and be irritated and to pull away and to separate. But Paul says that behavior is no longer normal. You don't live out there in the empire anymore. You're part of the body of Christ. And movement within the body is centripetal. It draws everything and everyone in toward the center, in toward Christ. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. One, 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 one. It's not the loneliest number after all. It's the number of community, the community of faith. This is the way things are supposed to be. The church was created by the breaking down of walls, by the coming together of people, whose only common denominator was a love for Jesus Christ. And notice that Paul uses the present tense when speaking of the body. There is one body. Not there will someday be one body if we all hold our breath and do the right things. There is one body. The natural state of the church, Paul suggests, is unity. And so, as Henry reminded us last week, um, we know what to do. We just need to do it. But how? That's the question, isn't it? And one which continues to be asked every time a group of Christians gathers. Because we, too, have come from a variety of places, many different places, with many different histories, many different worldviews. We, too, may have different values, different beliefs, different opinions. We worship the same God. And we read the same scriptures with the same degree of seriousness and respect. We listen for God's voice through those scriptures and in the gathered community. And yet, we somehow hear very different things. Some of us read certain verses of scripture and draw one conclusion. 
Others of us read those same verses and come out somewhere else entirely. The same Bible, same respectful, serious reading, the same determination to uh, adhere to the teaching that we receive from the Scriptures, and completely different conclusions, completely different paths being discovered, completely different understandings of how God's will for our lives, for our congregation, and even our denomination And I suspect that if it weren't one issue, it would be another, because we're a passionate group of people, as Pastor Sue told us. We're passionate about Jesus Christ. We're passionate about the church. We're passionate about the scriptures. We're passionate about living according to our understanding of those scriptures. And you get that many passionate people together in the same room, and there are going to be differences of opinion. There's going to be conflict. And I would suggest that that is a good thing. All right, when maybe good is too strong of a word, but it's certainly an understandable thing, right? It's a sign of passion and vitality. It's a sign of how deeply committed we are to Christ, to the church, and to the scriptures. Our diversity is a great strength. It's what attracted many of us to this congregation, right? It's a wonderful thing. I believe it's a sign of God's spirit among us, because only the spirit could call such a variety of people together in one place and form them into a congregation. And I think it's in our diversity that we truly learn how to love. It takes one kind of love to love those with whom we share everything in common, to love those with whom we rarely or never disagree. But it takes another deeper kind of love to love those with whom we have little in common, to love those with whom we disagree often, to love each other even within our diversity. Commentator Marcus Bart writes, and I quote, The terms love and bearing one another interpret each other mutually. If to love includes bearing one's neighbor, then love is not just an emotion or ideal of the individual soul. Rather, the personalities of specific neighbors and personal relations actually existing among the saints become the field and material of love. According to this passage, there is no love except in relation to specific neighbors. Love is not a disposition of the soul which can be perfect in itself without being given and shaped in ever new encounters. Love is always specific, always costly, always a miraculous event, end quote. In other words, we learn how to really love within the context of diversity as we learn to love people even those people with whom we disagree, as we learn to love people who are different from us. And that love is always a miracle of grace. But our diversity, even as we are learning to love one another within it, can sometimes lead to differences and even divisions among us. And divisions don't make us feel good, even when we may not be directly involved in division, even when it's maybe happening over here, over here. Those divisions trouble us, and they may even make us doubt, and with doubt comes anxiety, right? The fear of separation, of losing something and losing someone very precious to us. We're afraid of falling apart. We're afraid of splintering. We're afraid of disintegrating. And today we experience this anxiety, I think, primarily on the level of our conference and our denomination. We just barely made it through a decades-long conversation around the affirmation and full use of women's gifts for leadership, A conversation which on more than one occasion not only threatened to splinter our conference, but also threatened to splinter our congregation. And now hot on the heels of our Mennonite Church USA Assembly in Columbus, we hear about dissent within the denomination around issues of human sexuality, dissent around issues of inclusion and exclusion, issues of sin and grace. And our anxiety rises. 
Our previous experience of talking about such difficult issues has, well, it's not been great. We too often, we too often became entrenched in our positions. We too easily divided along theological or sociological lines or some other lines of our own making. And the conversation either devolved into posturing and shouting or dwindled into the kind of awkward silence that we know so well that we sometimes mistake it for peace. We hear this latest call to dialogue about an issue which divides us and we get nervous. As Paul said, there's one body. And we proclaim that. We believe it, too. But even as we work to obey that spirit-led impulse to remain in communion, we become aware again of all the things that cause us to separate in the first place. Even as we sense the spirit drawing us together toward the center, we sense our old human differences pulling us apart at the seams. Why is it, we wonder, that the very things that unite us, the scriptures and our desire to be obedient to them, are so often the things which seem to pull us apart? Why is it that our shared passion for following Jesus so often seems to be the exact thing that pushes us away from one another? Why is it that people who care so much about the same things can often wind up separating over how best to live out that passion? Is it possible, we wonder, is it really possible to live together with our differences, to own them fully, and maybe even welcome them as proof that we are engaged in something deep and of ultimate importance, and then to genuinely live together in love and the unity of the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit draws us to this letter from Paul, a letter which has itself been the source of some of our differing interpretations. And we hear Paul telling us about Christ the wall breaker. We hear Paul telling us that we are one, and so should work as hard as we possibly can to maintain that unity of the Holy Spirit. We hear Paul telling us to speak the truth in love. We hear Paul promise that Christ is at work promoting the body's growth and building itself up in love. And we want to experience that unity that Christ has created. And with the Ephesians and the rest of the church throughout time and history, we ask, how? Well, that's no easy question. It's not an academic one either. It's really a cry from the heart. When we look around our conference, we look around our congregation, our conference and our denomination, and we see our sisters and brothers, people whom we love so much and yet perhaps disagree with so strongly. We look around and are aware of how good it is that we're all part of the same spirit-inspired movement, even though we sometimes cause each other pain. We want to stay together. We wonder how we can. We want to live together in humility and gentleness, but we feel so strongly about what we hear God saying that it's hard to know where our humility stops and disobedience begins. We want to be patient, but it seems like some things are never resolved. We want to bear with one another, but at times we can't bear to be together. And what we feel within our congregation and in our conferences felt by Mennonite congregations and conferences across North America. It's felt within our denomination, and truth be told, it's felt in every other part of the global body of Christ. We hear Paul speaking to us, and we know he's right. But we've been trying, and we can't seem to get it down. And we cry out to God, how, Lord? How long? And how do we do it? And how do we maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit and the bond of peace? And we wonder, I wonder, if an answer will ever come. And then we turn again to this letter to the Ephesians and we look back 
We look back to the earlier chapters, the chapters which laid the theological foundation for the kind of ethical teaching that Paul gives in chapter 4. And we read in chapter 1 that it is God who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. God destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of God's will. With all wisdom and insight, God has made known to us the mystery of God's will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in chapter 2, Paul tells us that by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. For we are what God has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. So then, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. And in chapter 3, Paul offers this benediction. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I think it's in those words that we find our answer. How will we ever live up to what God through Paul is asking us to do? How will we ever lead lives worthy of the calling to which we have been called? How will we ever hope to be one body living in the unity of the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace? Well, this is how. Through the power and grace of God. It is God who chose us. It is God who adopted us. It is God who provides for us. It is God who equips us with all that we need to live lives worthy of that calling. We are part of God's plan to one day gather up into Christ all things in heaven and on earth. Salvation is not our work. It is a gift from God. God has created us in Christ Jesus. God has given us new life in Christ so we can do these good works which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. We're part of God's household, a household that's big enough to include the prophets, the apostles, the congregation in Ephesus, the congregation at East Chestnut Street, and congregations throughout time in the whole world a household with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone, a household in which God dwells, a God who has the power to do far more than we can ask or even imagine, including bringing unity to a diverse body of believers so that we might play our part in the redeeming of creation. God, God, Paul told the Ephesians, has brought you together and means to see to it that you become part of the household, part of the family of God, All the walls that divided you are gone now. Jesus saw to that. You have unity in Christ. Jesus saw to that. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. And when they added up all of those ones, the Ephesians realized that the answer was also one and that they were part of that answer. And we still hear Paul's words today, calling us to live lives worthy of our calling, calling us to unity in the one spirit through the one Son by the grace of the one God. 
That's how we'll come to live together in love, even with all our differences. It will happen because that is how God wills it. Now, I realize how unanabaptist that sounds. Sounds kind of Calvinistic, I know. So let me quickly add that I don't believe that we are mere puppets doing God's bidding whether we want to or not. There is a role that we will and must play, a role which calls for humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, making every effort to maintain our unity in the spirit and in the bond of peace. As Christ demolished the walls separating Jew from Gentile, so Christ has broken down the walls which separate us. But we have to decide, we have to decide how to live among the rubble from those broken walls. We can ignore that rubble and keep right on tripping over it. We can pick up the bricks or we can gather some new ones and start rebuilding the walls so that they are stronger this time. Or we can begin to clean up that pile brick by brick, not quickly sweeping things away, but carefully considering each brick and reckoning with its weight before we set it aside. That's hard work, and it will take time. And we're going to need to learn to live among the rubble while we work. And we're often, we do already, and we are going to continue to wonder whether this work will ever be over. Will we be strong enough to see it through to the end? We may not be, but we're not relying on our own strength whose limits we know very, very well. Our trust is in the strength of God, who is working to make us one. God's strength working within our congregation. God's strength working within our conference. God's strength working within our denomination and within the global body of Christ, bringing about something beyond our wildest imagination. And God's strength working within each of us individually, giving us what we need to do our part, empowering us to lead lives worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And that brings us, of course, back to Paul and to a prayer he offered at the end of chapter 3 on behalf of the Ephesian congregations. And it's a prayer that I would now like to offer on behalf of our congregation, our conference, our denomination, and for the church around the world. Let us pray with Paul. For this reason, I bow my knees before God, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name, and I pray that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant that you be strengthened in your inner being with the power through the Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. And I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power to work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. To God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.